Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean, Stuart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Great to connect. Yeah, looking forward to this week's show. We're going to start off with Strike Watch, a new feature on the Roundtable. This could go on for weeks, guys. Um... And I want to come to you, Stuart, because you are in Ottawa in the thick of this uh, national conflagration. Um, but Stuart, what I'm kind of enjoying in the rest of the country here in Toronto is just the complete obliviousness of everyone and everything to the fact that this strike is even happening. And Stuart, is that why we're starting to see these new steps by PSAC, the Public uh, Federal Workers Union, to begin to tighten the screws. Uh, rumors about Pearson now kind of coming under picket lines and uh, strike disruption, possibly the border, border crossings too. Is this because, Stuart, that strike just really isn't gaining much traction with the country as a whole? Yeah, I think that is kind of the nightmare scenario for PSAC is that, you know, they go on strike and nobody notices. Um, so I think that is really important for them. And you know, the one thing that is, I hadn't really considered this to the extent that it's possible is just this kind of weird stalemate where, you know, we've had reports this week that um, the, just sort of the nature of the public servant pay periods, no one's going to feel this until May 10th. So that is the earliest that people will start to worry about bills and getting paychecks and things like that. Um, the you know, they're getting four hours worth of strike pay. There's been some talk that some people are actually going to work in the afternoons after striking. So um, that's kind of an underrated part of all this is that because hold of on, the hybrid whoa, 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 whoa. Let's stop here. <laughs> I thought that might what get did, you. <laughs> what did I just hear? You're, this is like, this is the, you know, Marxism's fantasy. You know, what is it? The famous quote from Karl Marx, fishing in the morning, I don't know, basket weaving in the afternoon, a worker's paradise for everyone. I mean, what's going on? Yeah, it is strange because um, some of, a lot of these people are essential workers, so they are actually working and they do also have the right to go to work. So if you choose not to strike, you can just clock in at your job. Um, the, the weird part about that is that there's picket lines, but if you're a hybrid worker, I mean, you don't have to cross a picket line to go down to your kitchen in the morning, right? Um, so uh, it's just kind of a weird situation. There's less friction for these people not to strike. And then there are reports. This is, it's kind of weird, actually. To I don't know how the union feels about this. I haven't seen any public comments, but there are reports of people working in the mornings, getting strike pay, and then going and clocking in to whatever they do at home. So um, it is strange and it kind of flies, it, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, functions of a union when they go on strike that are meant to sort of raise the friction and raise the disturbance. But I, it's not even a disturbance for some of the people on strike. So it's it's anyone's guess to how long this could go. Yeah, I, I, let me take that up um, because I think what that anecdote, which is you know on the face of it, just a, a, a funny example of the state capacity issue that we've been talking about. 
in in the in the past several episodes. But but in a way, it speaks to something deeper, which is um, I think PSAC took for granted that the morale and the level of uh, kind of collective agitation on the part of uh, unionized federal workers was going to um, um, be a, a kind of source of power and influence in these negotiations. And you get the sense that um, that for a lot of public sector workers, they're just not they just can't get themselves kind of amped up by all of this. Um, as Stuart says, a lot of people uh, have opted to continue to work. Um, you know, we've heard we've seen reports that um, that morale uh, uh, at strike locations at picket locations is pretty low. Uh, I think there's a, a sense that they are, uh, like we talked about last week, uh, running ahead first into public opinion, which is not particularly sympathetic. And so you just get the sense, guys, like we talked about last week, that PSAC and its leadership, um, you know, seems to have misread the politics here, not just with the general public, um, but to a certain extent, even amongst its own uh, own members. There's a serious uh, public policy issue, though, it seems to have emerged over the last week around uh, work from home. Uh, We're seeing reports of corporations, obviously the other levels of government, expressing some real nervousness, Stuart, about this key bargaining point in the negotiations, which is the right to work from home, remote work, in a sense, permanent remote work. any feeling as to how that is working out? Is that still a kind of, you know, key demand? Um, you get a sense that for the government, if you're the federal government looking at this through the lens of public policy and productivity in the economy and downtown cores across the country that are continuing to see very low um, office occupancy, I believe, you know, Toronto is just scraping over 50%. You'd have to think that there's something bigger at stake here than simply granting the right to work to home to public service workers at the federal level. This could have big impacts for urban rejuvenation post-COVID, for, again, these big secular issues in Canada around productivity and uh, just the economic vitality of the country. Yeah, I, I the noises you hear coming out of government is that they are a little worried about that. and. You know, in a negotiation, everything's it's hard to sort of parse through uh, the negotiating tactics and the stuff that's not really true. But I often wonder if maybe the union went so high on wages so they could come down in you know response to getting something on work from home or hybrid working or something. Um, it really will matter how much the government cares about that. And you know, this is something there was some good reporting in the New York Times um, over the weekend last weekend about young people starting their careers from home. And, you know, there for people like me who have young children, there are obvious benefits. And we at the Hub have interviewed Lyman Stone, who's a researcher who's found some pronatal effects to work from home. So there are clear benefits there. Um, but I just wonder if maybe people like me, mid-career people who are comfortable with that and have kids to deal with and the commute is kind of a pain more than anything else, um, are, are we doing a disservice to these young people who, you know, when I was in my 20s, all of the great things that happened in my career came out of interactions in the newsroom and just getting excited about stuff and meeting people and getting little coachable moments from editors. I think that happens in every um, career. And even in the government, I think that is something that 
you know, if you if you have a workforce that has a reputation for being apathetic and who is now showing us that on the picket lines, I, Sean brings up a good point that um, something else that happened on the strike vote is that only a third of them actually voted on yeah. the strike vote. Um, so I think there is an apathy there. And I wonder if the government is concerned about compounding that. And I think everyone should be a little concerned about that. Just tremendous insight uh, from from both of you. Um, you know, we've reported on um, on the uh, poor outcomes with respect to public sector delivery uh, in the past several months, including, of course, probably the highest profile example, uh, which is the extraordinary delays in um, basic passport services. But Rudyard brings up a good point, which is we we shouldn't just think of of government solely through the lens of public policy and service delivery and all the rest. Uh, it, it's also one of the biggest employers in the country. And in that sense, influences um, broader labor market trends, including with respect to wages and benefits. Uh, and as you guys have been talking about, um, uh, basic workplace arrangements. If the federal government codifies the principle of hybrid work uh, with this union uh, in these negotiations, covering something like 125,000 employees, which just to put in parentheses, is like about the size of the entire auto sector employment in Canada, um, you know, and, and something approaching, um, you know, two thirds or something of employment in the oil and gas sector, it just sends a, a shot through the, the labor market that this ought to be um, the new default. Um, and you see that manifest itself in in expectations in, in in the private economy as well. And so I think you guys are probably right. You know, one hopes that the federal government is um, not just thinking about the impact of these negotiations on um, on the narrow question of what does it mean for uh, the federal government and its relationship with its employees, um, but more broadly, how does it influence labor market trends um, a across the economy? Yeah, and I hope somebody's also thinking of, you know, fairness. I mean, there are tens of thousands of unionized uh, grocery employees who have to show up every single day at a store to work um, eight-hour shifts or more in person to provide an essential service, which is, you know, food supply uh, for the country. And, you know, there are innumerable uh, professions that require uh, in-person service. And it's not that there couldn't be or there shouldn't be some aspects of a workplace like the federal public service where maybe work at home actually makes sense. Um, but I would bet they are the exception and not the rule. And I, I just continue to think if you put together what Stuart's talking about, which is, you know, the mentorship of the next generation of public service, you know, leaders who we need to take on, you know, complex challenges facing the country, their kind of mentorship and skills development combined with, as Sean said, the precedent setting across the larger workforce of white collar workers. Plus, again, I just think uh, intra worker fairness. I, you know, I wonder where the unions are in terms of talking about the fairness of a workforce of kind of ELOCs and um, what is it, Merloy or from I'm thinking of H.G. Wells is uh, famous novels, uh, Eloy, the Murlocs and the Eloy, uh, the time time machine. You know, we can't end up with that kind of extreme bifurcation of, in a sense, what is expected through this thing called work. 
I don't know, Stuart. Um, maybe these things don't register, but Sean, you want to come back? On I that? just want to. I just want to jump in. You know, I, I think the Fraser Institute has been really good at thinking about these questions over the years. You know that there's a tendency in some circles to instinctively criticize um, public sector wage premiums and to make a big deal about the pensions and health benefits and job security and now possibly uh, asymmetric treatment with respect to work from home. And one of the arguments that the Fraser Institute uh, and its scholars have made is the real issue here isn't any individual piece of that overall compensation. It's about making sure that total compensation is fair uh, with with um, workers in other parts of the economy. So in other words, if public sector workers want to have defined benefit pension plans, if that's a, a trade-off that, that they want to make in the name of lifetime security or whatever, then that has to be reflected in wages, or it has to be reflected uh, in health and dental benefits, or it has to be reflected in more flexible and less flexible workplace arrangements. The problem, of course, in these negotiations is PSAC is wanting to layer all of these relative benefits, um, stacking them one on top of another. And the net effect, as you say, Rudyard, is to create an extraordinary uh, discrepancy between the work experience of, of workers in the government uh, and those in other parts of the economy. And I just think it's there's something kind of unsustainable about it, especially as we head into a sustained period of tight labor markets. Everyone can't be drawn into the public sector ranks because of all of these uh, relative incentives. I mean, it, 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 it will quite seriously become a break on, on mm -hmm. economic growth and our capacity to pay uh, for the, the swelling ranks uh, of, of the government. Just at the end of the segment, we have the opportunity in this show to kind of tap into a different perspective from time to time. And that's uh, Amal Otter Guzman, our uh, Gen Z uh, producer here, who's at the beginning of her career. So Amal, I'm always interested, like your generation, your friends' perspectives on this. Like, are people uh, kind of, uh, for lack of a better expression, you know, pumped up about the idea of government employment because they see all these benefits that could accrue from working in the public service, or maybe, I don't know, maybe government service, public service has a bad rep amongst your generation as being a less dynamic, um, less creative place for a generation that, hey, like every generation wants to do things and wants to shake stuff up. I think it's a mix of both. There is one portion, well, in my cohort specifically, since we're the kind of the pu public policy wonks, Right. So just to explain to listeners, you're a graduate of the Monk School of uh, Global Affairs, where you received a master's degree and therefore are kind of part of a public policy elite amongst your generation. So it's a perfect place to get some analysis. It's a yeah, it's a perfect mixture because, well, specifically for me and my I was specifically in global affairs. So it's kind of a mixture of folks. So we got the folks who are interested in going to government, whether it's federal, provincial, local. But you also got the folks who are very interested in the private sector. And it's very interesting, especially in our cohort, there is this dynamic of should we go to public sector? Should we go to the private? I think there is this idea that this idea that the public sector is seems to be very positive. It's much more stable. There's the pay. Um, you got all the pensions. But then you hear stories about Phoenix and about how sometimes some public sector <laughs> workers are not getting paid on time. And guess what? People need to pay their mortgages. People need to pay their rent. So it doesn't seem to be that appealing. 
especially there is also the sense of the job load as well. Like you're doing all this work and where is it going? Where And people can't really see those tangible results immediately, not like in the private sector. So sometimes there's this push and pull from my cohort. Sometimes people are like, well, public sector has so many benefits. But then people are like, well, what about the private sector? You can do the same amount of work, get more experience, meet interesting people at a much higher pay. And with this with the strike, I don't know. A lot of people are not seem to be that sympathetic to the workers, to workers. Yeah, great insights, Amal. Thank you. And just to finish on that point, Sean, the pay issue is interesting because those distinctions really have broken down. And in fact, isn't there an argument now that you know the compensation of the average federal public service worker beyond you know this life work flexibility of stay at home, possibly beyond the defined benefit pension, beyond all the different you know, plans and sick days and vacation time, the actual just pay per kind of seniority level is now rivaling or above that of the private sector. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, there, there's pretty good empirical work on that question. And I think on on average, public sector workers are actually earning higher than their private sector, private sector counterparts. It's worth observing, guys, especially because I know we have a lot of listeners in Alberta, that the magnitude of that discrepancy differs across the country. It's the highest uh, in Alberta, of course, because for years, um, the, the the economy was throwing off massive revenues uh, and governments were sitting on uh, a lot of money and they plowed that into, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, rising public sector wages. And so um, it's, it's extraordinary to look at those discrepancies across the country and and uh, Alberta, um, for all of the talk of being this conservative utopia, uh, is actually the place where uh, public sector workers, on average, own earn more than their private sector counterparts. And and you know, I just say, as we head into an election in Alberta, there's not reason to think that that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, well, come take a look at the sunshine list in Ontario. <laughs> it's big. Um, well, look, let's uh, let's put a pin in this topic. I think we're going to have to come back to it next week because it is fast evolving. Uh, lots of different pieces uh, falling into place or not. How long will it go on for? I mean, this potentially, I don't know. I sense now, I thought this was going to be resolved really quickly. I have a feeling now that it could be, it could be, a, it could be weeks. Um, it's not clear to me that the union has either created enough disruption, discomfort and pain points for the government and certainly the public's attitude uh, just seems to be best characterized as blasé at this moment. But we'll continue to watch it for you at The Hub and in the pages of The Hub uh, each and every day, Monday through Saturday. Well, back on the other side of this break with the streaming wars, they're running smack dab into a wall of new government legislation and regulation Uh What's going to be happening on your Netflix screen, your TikTok account, your Spotify music feed? Government's stepping in, changes afoot. We'll bring it to you right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. 
Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Okay, guys, we've got to talk about the big legislation that got royal assent last night, Bill C-11, effectively allowing uh, the Heritage Minister to issue some policy directives to the CRTC to regulate, uh, require uh, CanCon, Canadian content, on major streaming platforms from TikTok to Spotify, you name it. Um, Stuart, what do you think happens next? There's been a lot of strum and drang around this legislation over two years now. It's in and out of the sausage maker. Do you think it's going to have a big impact? Are we going to see this unfold on our screens? Uh, what's its impact on Canadian culture? Yeah, this is interesting because... The entire controversy around this bill was based on the user-generated content part of it. Um, I think I've read some experts who think that if they hadn't insisted on this, or if they'd accepted the Senate changes that took that out of it, um, they wouldn't have had the same backlash to this bill. So that's interesting. That shows you that the government could have avoided two years of, you know, painful political stuff, um, but for this thing. That but Stuart, haven't they? Haven't they said, in effect, I mean, they promised, we'll have to see in the details of the policy, but haven't they promised that, you know, user-generated content is not going to be affected by these new CanCon requirements? You have to do some language parsing to figure out what they're promising. So I would, okay. uh, I, the question is, why is it still in the bill? And I've read some, you know, some really smart people who still don't know the answer to that. Um, the... The, I'll throw out two theories that Michael Geist, who's been criticizing this bill from the left, um, put forth, which is that the government actually does really care about this and it was worth the fight for them, or that they've been kind of pushed along by certain cultural lobbies in Quebec to do this and um, admitting a mistake was more painful than just doing this fight. I think that's, you know, two fair theories on this. Um, I think this bill will probably not be in the headlines much. I, I think it's going to be kind of tucked away in regulations in the CRTC. Um, the interesting thing that's going to happen now is we have two more bills um, dealing with the internet. One is the online harms bill and the other one is the online news act, which we've talked about. The online harms bill, which is in essence, a censorship bill, um, whether you think it's good censorship or bad censorship is, you know, in the eye of the beholder, but it is an internet censorship bill. It's something that a few countries are doing, and um, it's going to cause a lot of backlash. And the interesting thing that just happened actually today reported in the BBC is that a similar bill in the UK has caused Wikipedia to say, if you guys make us do this, register people's ages, we're just going to pull Wikipedia from the UK. Um, so I think that is the kind of thing we can look forward to. We've already seen Google and Facebook saying, we're not going to allow news in Canada. Um, so the sort of cascading things of, uh, you know, services we might lose due to these bills, I think will make it big headlines. And these are a, a trifecta of bills that are all related. I agree with Stuart um, that it's going to take some time for the consequences of C11 to manifest themselves as as viewers and listeners know um the first step is legislation and then the the guts of the legislation often um finds expression in regulation 
um, that takes some time to develop. And of course, in this particular case, it'll it'll come in the form of CRTC decisions that effectively bring expression to the legislation through particular decisions, kind of equivalent to uh, the way our court systems work. Um, but I think what's important for uh, viewers and listeners to know is that as soon as this bill got royal assent, like minutes after the GG's, the ink was dry on the GG's name, you had cultural groups calling on the CRTC and the government to use these new powers that they've given themselves to effectively regulate uh, user-generated content. So the government can say one thing, um, but the stakeholders are saying another, and ultimately the government doesn't have control over the decisions the CRTC makes. It can, uh, in some instances, overturn subsequent CRTC decisions, but it is a kind of quasi-judicial independent body. And so in some ways, the the kind of politics over time will shift um, to fights at the CRTC. Let me just make one point though, because I something I've written a bit about at the Hub, I think what the government has done here shouldn't be underestimated. It represents the overturning of, in hindsight, what was one of the most important decisions of the of the Kretchen government in the 1990s. Um, you know, the Kretchen government's policy legacy is pretty significant. The, you know, balancing the budget, of course, um, the decision ultimately not to participate in the war in Iraq, well, I think will be part of, of that legacy. But in the 90s, the government confronted this question. Should we extend the CanCon regime um, to at that time was a kind of embryonic internet? And if you go back and read the directive out of the CRTC, uh, it anticipated effectively what's happened is that the CR that that leaving the internet essentially unregulated would contribute to a kind of democratization and a positive sum impact on content, including Canadian content. And so, you know, it's just it's striking to me that in some some ways it reflects, I think, a change in the ideological kind of lens of big L liberal politics in Canada that in, you know, approximately 20 or 25 years, we're seeing uh, uh, one of the biggest and most important decisions out of the Trudeau government essentially undoing uh, a, a legacy decision of our last uh, liberal government uh, from a kind of market-oriented, small L liberal approach to a, a much more uh, top-down centralized approach I, I regret that um, that the prime minister hasn't been asked how he kind of thinks about the fact that this is undoing a decision by one of his liberal predecessors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I, I think to pick up on what Stuart said, you know, at the end of the day, eyeballs matter, right? So if user generated content is responsible for a lot of eyeballs, then you can bet at some point the CRTC is going to come for those eyeballs because in a sense, the policy doesn't work. The policy doesn't, doesn't matter. It has no efficacy if it's not delivering eyeballs and ears and you name it on Canadian content. Right? So what's, what's the point? Like you, you're going to have to target if it's JJ McCullough, a friend of the hub uh, that you've interviewed and who's got a really successful YouTube channel, you know, guess what? I don't know. Um, It'll be interesting to see what they do in terms of um, that very question of how effective this is. But I, I have one other problem with this is it, it just seems so retrograde. It seems like we're, we're in a time machine. I'm hung up on H.G. Wells today. Um, we're in a time machine. We've gone back to the 20th century and we pulled out this, this ornery, horrible playbook, which looks something like this. We 
we take an industry that's politically connected and we uh, want to ensure that it has a stream of payments that come from government uh, because it is politically corrected. And generally, you know, they're kind of nice people doing nice things. So, you know, uh, they, they deserve the help of the state. We then, uh, you know, beat our chests in a kind of flurry of usually anti-Americanism, you know, big, bad Americans, Hollywood, um, corrupting the minds of Canadian children. And then we wrap it all in a Canadian flag. And this is about, you know, defending the country and defending our identity. When at the end of the day, it's just about the oldest Canadian game, which is creating these protected kind of play pens for so-called business enterprises to exist in. And guys, it's everywhere. It's half of agriculture. It's all of telecommunications. It's all of banking. Uh, it's, it's all the cultural industries. Um, and the end of the day, what do we get? We, to me, I think we get two big public policy failures. One, we get consumers being treated like foie gras geese with like the content rammed down their throats because, Hey, the state thinks this is good for you. And actually it's really not about you. It's about justifying subsidies to friends of the state. So you're going to have this stuff popping up in your feeds on your Netflix, you know, suggested shows, um, because we think it's good for you, but it's really not you. It's about subsidies. So that's problem number one. And then problem number two is just like with telcos and banking and parts of agriculture and all the protected industries in Canada, it thwarts uh, competition, which in turn thwarts performance, productivity, and in a sense, business enterprise success. What better way for Canadian cultural industries to be successful and to generate um a dynamic global industry. Just look at uh, television out of Europe or television out of South Korea, which has been uh, a huge success. Music out of South Korea that's gone all over the world. Um, we instead take this insular view that I think uses and abuses the consumer and denies the very industries we seek to support the means to truly become excellent because they are dependent, they are welfare recipients, dressed up in this, you know, thin veneer of nationalism and anti-Americanism to justify it all. Hey, I got my rant in today. Well, no, no, here, 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 it's worked. My two-year-old is next to me in the hotel room watching Paw Patrol, which is a Canadian program that is one of the most popular uh, on Netflix and um, internet other internet streaming services. And yet, according to uh, the government and the CRTC, it's not sufficiently Canadian for whatever reason until it receives a, a subsidy and is the subject to mandates and quotas and all the rest. Um, the other point worth making here, though, that connects the dots um, between um, this particular piece of legislation and the two others that um, that Stuart mentioned um, is that it's it's anti egalitarian, right? Like one of the benefits of the Internet is it's democratized the both the public square with respect to who gets to express opinions and participate in journalism and all the rest yeah. and with respect to content creation like you mentioned JJ McCullough. JJ McCullough has something approaching 800,000 uh, subscribers to his YouTube channel. Um, in the top-down world of CanCon, um, he may not have existed. In fact, there's a, a strong possibility 
that he wouldn't have existed. So there's something kind of in counterintuitive that this government that's committed to the principles of inclusion and all the rest, the one idea that connects the dots through all these pieces of legislation um, is that we, we want to close the the uh, the ability for uh, people to participate in the public square or in content creation uh, in an egalitarian, democratized way. In effect, we want to have a centralized system that will judge which content is ought to be preferenced, which ideas ought to be preferenced in the world of the online harms bill. And in the case of the, of the media legislation, which organizations are going to be deemed in the eyes of the state to be legitimate media organizations that ought to be ought to benefit from um, subsidies, whether they're public subsidies or mandated ones from uh, from private companies. But if you're not in the categories, in the views of the state, um, then uh, you're on the outside looking in. It's an, it's an extraordinary kind of underlying position that connects the dots between these pieces of legislation for a government that, as I say, um, has a, a fancies itself committed to inclusion and and all the rest. Yeah, well said. It's it's basically what Canada has done for a long, long time, which is to choose uh, to dial down kind of individualism, self-expression, and dial up some kind of consensus view as to what should be public speech. What is not just the content of speech, but the arena and context within which that speech should unfold. And Stuart, to come back to you and give you the last word on this, I guess what I thought about all this is I do have genuine sympathies for Quebec um, and the extent to which, as a distinct society, they are struggling with their language. And they are, in a way that English Canada is not, swamped with um, English digital content. And I just wonder, at the end of the day, was all this really about Quebec? And if it was, God, like, how, why can't we just call it what it is? That Quebec has separated in everything but name only. Let's give them the cultural policies that they want. But, you know, why metastasize them across the rest of English-speaking Canada to have these, like, deleterious public policy outcomes in terms of, you know, an actually genuinely competitive, efficient, set of cultural industries in English-speaking Canada and using and abusing the English-speaking, you know, digital media consumer and turning them into an agent of state policy as opposed to an agent of individual choice, uh, accessing content freely according to their desires and inclinations. Yeah, I am. It is funny to have a really sort of long, earnest discussion about the mechanics of this bill and then go, oh, yeah, it's all about boats in Quebec. But I mean, <laughs> that is we could have done this in 30 seconds and uh, it being over with. And, you know, I'm similar to you in that I'm very sympathetic. You know, I was born in Scotland and I, I really do believe in protecting culture and, you know, um, I, I, language especially. I think that's so important. Um, and I theoretically would support a lot of this stuff in Quebec, except that when you live in a federation, it becomes inherently more complicated um, just for that reason that there's more than just you. Um, so I, I think that is worth thinking about. And one thing that, it, you know, if anyone's looking at these bills and wondering where the opposition is going to come, Pierre Polyev's numbers have been slipping in Quebec. 
they have to kind of maintain a foothold in Quebec at the very least. So I wonder what will happen with the Conservative Party on this, because they they'll be straddling this balance of wanting to oppose the government, but worrying about numbers in Quebec. So that kind of stuff is just not going to go away. But surely, Sean, this is the ultimate example of the so-called gatekeeper. I mean, if there ever was uh, a poster uh, that had on it, you know, Pierre Polyev's kind of target-rich environment of government quangos, you know, acting as, you know, the gatekeepers to everything while the CRTC is it. He singled the CRTC out for, you know, repeated criticism. I mean, how could they back off this? Yeah, 100%. And, and I would also add that uh, we've written a bit at the Hub about the progress that Polyev and the Conservatives seem to be making with younger voters. You mentioned earlier, Rudyard, um, that C11 in particular just reflects a kind of anachronistic view about consumer habits and consumer demands, etc. Um, you know, it seems to me if he doesn't come out strongly against C11 and commit not just to uh, repealing it, but um, going to the kind of core of the ongoing role and mandate of the CRTC, he's missing an opportunity to communicate to those younger voters that he gets it um, and uh, that the rest of Ottawa um, doesn't. Excellent, guys. Well, a great, fulsome uh, discussion. I just want to give a shameless plug out to Sean Spear, who had an amazing interview this week with Martin Wolf of the Financial Times of London on his big new book. So, Kudos to you, Sean, for grabbing for the hub one of probably the world's, you know, well-regarded kind of sophisticated thinkers on political economy. So really urge uh, listeners to check out that and also check out Stuart Thompson's piece on the perils and pitfalls of uh, what could happen in Parliament post-election if the Conservatives don't win a majority. It's our top trending story right now. On the hub, and you can grab that at www.thehub.ca. Well, thanks guys for coming on the show. We'll do it all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, the hub's editor in chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.